You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Well, I'm so glad I get to be with you online today. I appreciate so much your willingness to let us come to you and worship this way. Today, the rest of us are on retreat at Hickory Knob. We're sorry that you couldn't be with us. We, I, I assume that your reasons are really good ones, and I hope that next year, the first weekend of March, you'll go ahead and make a note on your calendar now so you can be with us in person. But for today, even though we're not together in person, we're hearing the same message. Those who are in person at Hickory Knob are hearing the same message this morning that you're hearing, and it's from Philippians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, something to write on and something to write with, it's always the best way to engage the message. Um, turn to Philippians chapter 4 and let's jump in. So I'm thinking about the relationship between expectations and love and contentment. It's not too hard to see how those might be interrelated. Uh, if your expectations are really high, and you're, that, that, that's going to create kind of a deficit in love, a dysfunctional kind of love, and that obviously is going to breed discontent. So if your expectations are right-sized, and for most of us that means lowered, not tanked, but lowered, then you're better able to love unconditionally, and you will find yourself positioned for contentment. Your contentment level will rise. Viktor Frankl talks about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He survived life, Viktor Frankl did, in four different prison camps during the Holocaust. And while he was there, he began to notice there was this one kind of person who somehow managed, even in their misery, to have a giving attitude and, and to do even some heroic things. Here's what he wrote about his experience. He wrote, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof, listen to this, that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance, to choose one's own way. That's powerful, and it proves the point that love, expectation, and con con contentment are connected and, in fact, can be life-changing. We can choose to right-size our expectations of other people so that we will love them unconditionally, and in that choice, we actually create contentment for ourselves. This is the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's operating principle. He said, Philippians 1.13, I am in chains for Christ. And again, Philippians 3, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul's whole reason for living was not just because what he was doing was fun or that his circumstances were particularly rich and enjoyable. No, actually, he talked about being shipwrecked and beaten, all kinds of stuff, imprisoned. No, his whole purpose in following Jesus and preaching Jesus was that it gave meaning to his life. And, and that meaning translated for him into contentment in any circumstance. J just meaning, not just, sorry, not just meaning to his life, but a sense of contentment no matter what the circumstances. And that's 
the big finale and the secret sauce at the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, known as the Book of Joy. Here's the point. Contentment is a heart attitude that accepts what is and trusts a sovereign God for what can be. Let's say that again. Let's say it together. Contentment is a hard attitude that accepts what is and trusts a sovereign God for what can be. So here's the question. Are you willing to pursue a hard attitude that accepts what is and trusts a sovereign God for what can be? Because if you are, here's the payoff. It will transform the way you love people, and it will actually result in greater contentment. So let's look at chapter 4 together. Just look at the first verse. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. i got to start this over because it's so good. Listen to this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I had to read it with some emotion because that's how you feel it. It's like opening a, a very special love letter. Paul is kind of gushing with affection here. It oozes out of him. My brothers and sisters, you I long for, my joy, my crown. It's so sweet, isn't it? And generous and good. He's in desperate love with his people. And I know that feeling. There's a, there's a phrase in that first verse, in this way. You see it in verse 1, in this way. Do, that, do it in this way. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. This is Paul telling his readers to do it like this. He's, he says as much in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, follow my example. Do it like this. Love lavishly. Give your hearts to each other in this way. There's something about it, this, this heart-level affection for fellowship, for, 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 this, for this community, to give yourself to people without unreasonable expectation, vulnerably, honestly. I have you in my heart, Paul says. I know that whether I'm in chains or defending the gospel, you're with me. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What's not to love about a man willing to give his heart like that? No holding back, no protecting himself, no trying to sound more appropriate, whatever appropriate is. I just love you. I long for you. I find so much joy in you. You have my heart. So Paul teaches us that real contentment comes when I see myself as part of a loving fellowship. But it isn't just fellowship, it's fellowship in Christ. There's something about it, this, this willingness to love and be loved lavishly because of Jesus, with Jesus as the anchor. This love Paul has for these people, it's not because of their striking good looks or their shining personalities. No, it's in the Lord. It's, based on them, it's, it's not based on them getting it all perfect either. He goes on from there to deal with two women who must have been having some kind of spat or disagreement. And I actually love that he addresses this publicly in this letter. He's not protecting their identity here. He calls them out. 
not, not to shame them, but because this is a community thing. Listen, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I'm asking you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Isn't that just the best? I just love that he he calls out two women publicly in a letter that's going to be read in the whole town, I mean, the whole community of believers there in in Philippi. What I love is that Paul seems to talk about this little spat between Euodia and Syntyche like it's the normal stuff of community, and it is. It's what happens in community. Sometimes we love each other to pieces, and sometimes we want to wring each other's necks. Let me get an amen. I'll be completely open with you. Sometimes you are my joy and you are my crown. And sometimes you irritate the stew out of me. And I, and I hear you. That road goes both ways. Real community is messy. Relationships are hard. People are irritating. Some people are downright crazy. And you know the people I'm talking about. You know what I really love? I really love that Paul wasn't even there in Philippi when this is happening. He's in prison when this letter was written. So somebody had to tell him what was going on between these two people. And listen, based on what we read here, it never even occurred to Paul to take sides except to take the side of Jesus. I, I just heard this last week, and it made me laugh. When the Lord returns in power and glory, it will not be to take sides. It will be to take over. Don't you love that? So Paul isn't taking sides except except to take the side of Jesus. So get over it, people. Things happen. You have way too much going on to be bogged down in whatever has you irritated. Learn how to get over it in Jesus' name. Not because I agree with you, but because we believe in Jesus. I just wonder, you know, is it possible that we ask too much of each other? That we have expectations that are too high, too unreasonable? I was with a group of people last week um, from around the world. They were talking about what it means for denominations to be in ecumenical partnership with each other. Ecumenism, that's a 25-cent word right there. Ecumenism is basically the pursuit of partnership with other Christians in other tribes, finding all the ways we can connect without asking each other to change. It starts with the idea that if we come to recognize a person as a brother or sister in Christ, we really must relate to them as family. So for instance, if I come to recognize my friend Philip Hitchcock, who is a Baptist pastor, as a brother in Christ, then I really have to see him as family. If I come to recognize Dave Keener, our friend across the street at Christ the King, as a brother in Christ, I have to see him as family. That doesn't mean we agree about everything, not at all. It means we long for the things in another person that might be missing in our own lives, and we learn to share with others who are longing for what we've found. So healthy ecumenism isn't about getting everybody under the same roof. It's about it's more about exchanging gifts. It's, it's our relationship with Christ the King, for example. And, and while they aren't exactly churches, it's also our relationship with Easter Seals and with the Center for New Beginnings. You know, we learn to ask 
Lord, what do you have to teach me through this person? Isn't that a great way to approach a brother or sister in Christ? Especially one with whom you disagree on some issues. What do you have to teach me through this person? So we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and to listen to others and to receive the gifts they bring to the table. So the best part of the conversation I was having with all those people, they were Catholic lay people and Greek Orthodox bishops and house church leaders and new charismatics. The best part of that whole conversation is that it is all about uh, cultivating deep friendship. Deep friendship. Not, not unity on every point, but deep friendship. Friendship rooted in Christ. That doesn't require me to be in lockstep with each other. It only requires us to see the gifts in each other. So how can I receive the gifts you have to give and give the gifts I have without either of us asking more than is humanly possible? I'm working this idea out, right, as I listen to Paul and listen to him in these women and this whole situation with Euodia and Syntyche. Paul says they, they've been so good at contending for the gospel and they've, and they've been with him shoulder to shoulder and they've also struggled to see the gifts in each other. And both things can be true at the same time. They can contend for the gospel together and they may struggle in some areas and we can still love each other. So I'll ask again, is it possible that sometimes we just ask too much of each other? Look at verses 4 through 7. This part's going to sound more familiar to you. It's an, uh, a, a powerful part of the um, Philippian letter. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness, I want you to underline that word gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul starts that little section on the theme of rejoicing, and he says it twice to emphasize it. Rejoice. Let me repeat myself. Rejoice. But this isn't just hopped up emotionalism. There's a gentleness to this rejoicing. In fact, there's a word I really love in this section that seems to connect. The word is epiaikos. It's in verse 5. And in the translation, translation I just read, it's, it's translated as gentleness. But some people have translated it as sweet reasonableness. Isn't that beautiful? Sweet reasonableness. I think if I get a band one day, I'm going to name them sweet reasonableness. It's kindness. It's goodness of heart. It's a biblical gentleness that looks humanely and reasonably at the facts and finds a way to operate in grace. I think maybe that's what Paul is appealing to when he tells this little Christian community to help Euodia and Syntyche out, to help them towards sweet reasonableness, help them find a biblical gentleness that looks humanely and reasonably at the facts so they can find a way to operate in grace. And then bring this same sweet reasonableness into their rejoicing, not to squelch the spirit, but as a way of loving God and loving each other well. Sweet reasonableness. Isn't that a great phrase? I wonder, do you have a situation in your life that might benefit from a little sweet reasonableness 
that might benefit from a little less digging in, a little more sweet reasonableness. If you'll give it a shot, here's the payoff. Verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, which is to say, don't cling to the circumstances. Cling to Jesus. Cling to the love and cover of a good and gracious God because your circumstances won't always be comfortable. People will disappoint you. Your prayers won't yield the results that you're looking for. And, and sometimes you'll even disappoint yourself. Because as hard as you try, you won't always get it perfect. Never mind all that. Lean into God. Cling to Jesus. Trust that what he sees is bigger than what you can see. And keep praying. And, 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 and cultivate within yourself. Listen to this interesting juxtaposition. Cultivate within yourself a sweet reasonableness, but at the end of the day, understand that the peace you get will be beyond understanding. Isn't that just, I just, Paul, he's so brilliant, so wise. Henry Nouwen was a brilliant scholar, professor at both Yale and Harvard, who he left the academic world to become a, a pastor to, to folks with profound disabilities. And in his book, The Inner Voice of, of Love, he writes this, you are constantly facing choices. The question is whether you choose for God or for your own doubting self. You know what the right choice is, but your own emotions, passions, and feelings keep suggesting you choose the self-rejecting way. Paul, uh, God says to you, I love you. I am with you. I want to see you come close to me and experience the joy and peace of my presence. That's the voice to listen to. And that listening requires a real choice. Do not let your anxious emotions, what distracts you, remember you are held safe. You are loved. You are protected. What is of God will last. It belongs to eternal life. Choose it. This is, in, this is now and end. Choose it and it will be yours. It's all about imprinting onto Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we begin to follow him as our father and brother. So here's the question. In which of your circumstances do you want to apply the Spirit's power? The temptation is, of course, is to answer all of them. <laughs> but I want you to be specific. In which of your particular circumstances do you want to apply the Spirit's power? All right, look at verse 8. This is Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul goes on, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So remember what Viktor Frankl said? He said, it's almost as if he was quoting Paul, actually. He said, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So I can choose where I put my thoughts, what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely. What does that look like exactly? What is, what is God asking me to think on? I actually kind of took each one of those, those phrases, what is true, what is noble, 
What is right? What is pure? What is lovely? And I applied it to a circumstance in my own life that was really frustrating me. And it was kind of interesting to say that, all right, in this situation, what is true? And I had to write down only the things that are true. In this situation, what is lovely? And I wrote down only the things that are lovely. In this situation, what is noble? And I wrote down only the things that are noble. You get what I'm saying? It actually, it actually asks us to begin to think at a higher level so that the high expectations that I have are not for you. They're actually for my own mind. I am being asked to, to think higher. J. Kim, in his book, um, Analog Christian, Cultivating Content, uh, excuse me, Commitment, Resilience, and Wisdom in a Digital Age. Um, we talked about that book last fall when we were doing this whole series on wisdom. Kim tells a story about a painter who uh, named Apelles, who was commissioned to paint a portrait of Alexander the Great. When the painting was unveiled, a shoemaker noticed that the number of laces on the sandals was incorrect. And so he, he pointed it out to the painter, who's grateful for the advice. But then the shoemaker went on to offer some more advice on other parts of the painting beyond the sandals. Finally, Apelles, the painter, is said to have told him, shoemaker, nothing but the shoe. <laughs> In other words, don't get outside your wisdom zone. That scene has inspired a term, ultra-crepidarian. See if you could say that three times really fast, ultra-crepidarian, which means expressing opinions on matters outside the scope of one's knowledge or expertise. That's a term for people who try to be intelligent about things they don't know anything about, saying something because I can, saying something to fill the air, to fill my ego's need to know something about whatever conversation we're in. Oh my goodness, I feel a need to repent right now. <laughs> Shoemaker, nothing but the shoe. That may be the greatest lesson in building a framework for wisdom. I suspect that's what all the biblical writers meant when they said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's having the humility to know that I don't know what I don't know. But now take all of that that I just said and put it back here. Pour it back in here to verses 7 through 9 in Philippians. Paul invites his people, people he loves, his joy, his crown, people he longs for. He invites them to choose what they know, to cultivate wisdom that defaults to kingdom values in any circumstance, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is pure. Think on those things and you'll find a contentment there. You, you will be able to, to default to the positives in any circumstance. It's a decision to choose What's good, what's noble, what's lovely, what's just, what's reasonable, instead of choosing whatever I can whine about or complain about or be irritated about. <laughs> Paul says, verse 11, he's learned how to be content in every circumstance, any circumstance. He's learned how to approach any situation, every relationship, without some preset package of needs. That's how we end up not just thinking well, but loving well, reasonable expectations breed healthy love, which breeds contentment. I want you to write that down. Reasonable expectations breed healthy love, which breeds contentment. So contentment is a heart attitude that accepts what is 
and trust the sovereign God for what can be. Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all of that only through him who strengthens me. I want to notice one more thing in this chapter. It's the final greetings, second to the last verse, 22. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Evidently, there are people, I mean, this is worth noting, there are people in Caesar's household who have come to know Jesus, which means that the gospel of Jesus Christ somehow leaked in and found more power to persuade than Caesar in his own household. They weren't even hiding it. And that gospel that began to change the household of Caesar, that same good news about Jesus still has power to transform lives and cultures and communities today still has that same power. You know, we've been witnessing in weeks, recent weeks uh, as this, this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, fresh outpouring of faith has drawn folks from the four corners of the world to that little town called Wilmore in Kentucky. That outpouring has captured our imaginations. And we've talked about it uh, here at Mosaic. We've talked about it a lot lately but because we love Asbury. But really more than that, because I don't want to let it get forgotten. I want it to leak. I want to bring the fire home to us. I really want to understand what it means to be part of a revival, especially if a revival is God's spreading it across the world, and he is. So I want to quote a friend who works at Asbury and who wrote about her experience. And all of it kind of fits together with me, with these people who were sitting in Caesar's household who suddenly came to know Jesus and found hope. So this woman, she writes, um, theologian, and uh, as theologians, she's a, she is a theologian, in fact, she writes, as theologians, and well, everyone everywhere, um, name and debate what, it, what this revival was and wasn't. What I do know for sure is that people are longing for God. I don't want to forget the Latino family, grandpa, dad, uncle, kids, mama, who when they made it into Hughes Auditorium after what must have been a wait of hours, didn't even go to their seats. They went immediately to the altar and collapsed in front of it. We saw this over and over again. This woman who was part of this revival, she continues writing. I want to remember the family who drove 30 hours each way from Mexico for someone to pray over their baby for healing. My heart is broken with the 18 men who piled into a 15-person passenger van for nine hours to pray at an altar for 30 minutes. Holding in my heart this time of prayer with an Indian pastor and his wife, Diana, from the United Kingdom, interceding for their country and their campuses. Who can forget the Brazilians? They showed up. Their passionate prayers for their country showed up. As a mom of a daughter with special needs, the families who brought their children for prayer for medical issues just broke my heart. Their faith, their desperation, I feel it with them. Remembering the pastor, uh, the pastor couple from Chile who sold their car to be here and strangers passing on money. Can you give it to the lady who sold her car? Yeah, we will. I want to remember people giving what they had 
We had no donation box set up, so they handed it to us. Thank you, thank you, people said. This is what I have to give, whether it was a nickel or a hundred dollars. So many high schoolers praying for relief from the bondage of pornography. Parents, step in. Take away phones. Keep them out of bedrooms. Your children are desperate. A joyful group from a church in San Diego, so full of joy of being here. Thank you for your encouragement. Praying with a team from Canada who were full of stories of God on the move in Canada and how God moved on their drive down. Mostly, she continues, I will remember our relationships between one another on the ground team, the volunteer team, and the ministry team. And then she ends with this. Revival runs on the track of relationships. That's really good. Revival runs on the track of relationships. And good relationships depend on our healthy expectations and our practice of contentment with what is, trusting in a sovereign God for what can be. Revival runs on the track of relationships. That's how cultures are changed. That's how the world has changed. So are you willing to pursue a heart attitude that accepts what is and trusts the sovereign God for what can be? Let's pray over that right now. Will you bow your head wherever you are right now? Just stop what you're doing. Set your stuff down. If you've gone to the trouble to get this far into an online message, then take the extra trouble to make this a real prayer. Lord Jesus, I think about all those people, I mean tens of thousands of people, who went to extraordinary lengths to get to an altar in a little town because somehow they thought you were there. They were just that desperate the power of you and the strength of you and the love of you and the presence of you. And I contrast that with me. <laughs> and how I might not even get up off the sofa sometimes. Or I might not get up out of my chair or I might not get on my knees or I might not open my Bible or I might not bow my head in prayer or I might not, I might not, I might not. And I think, God, I'm praying for those who are watching also. Sometimes we get the fire, and sometimes we might not get off the sofa. So, Lord, my, my prayer is that you give us a grace today to be willing to pursue a heart attitude that accepts what is, but also trusts you a good, sovereign, loving, big God for what can be in our relationships, in our fellowship, in our care for one another, in our community, in our state, in our world. We, we God, we need to right-size our expectations, and I'm asking you to help us do that. Right-size our expectations so that we can love each other and love even the ones we don't know, love even the ones that we'll never be under the same roof with, love them without expecting more of them 
than is humanly possible. And all of it, God, so that we can find a contentment, a peace with what is, a peace with you, a peace with what you know to be possible. God, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for my friends. And I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.